So let's turn to Revelation. Today hopefully we'll do chapters 8 and 9. Because chapter 8 and 9 are so grim, let's start in chapter 7 and just remember where this is all headed. In 7.9 it said, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand. Palm branches are used, remember, on uh, the Palm Sunday, the palm branches to, to welcome royalty. And so this idea is here, we're in the throne room and we are part of the kingdom coming in. So that's, that's where we're headed. And these, of course, are people that lost their lives and they're being greatly honored. So even though things are going to really get dire, uh, there is always hope. And that's one of the overriding themes of Revelation. And we're not going to focus so much today on trying to discern what is exactly happening. It's pretty clear it's bad. And so what we're going to focus on is what I think the main point of this is, is that God is authorizing these things. They're necessary to bring about fulfillment and redemption. And what we're called to do is to believe and know God's still on His throne and that our job is to be faithful witnesses no matter what comes. So chapter 8... When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So remember, the lamb is breaking the seals. And each time the lamb breaks a seal, a story comes to life. And the story is telling us these events that are going to come. And now we break the seventh seal. And in the seventh seal is going to come seven angels that are going to blow seven trumpets. And each time a trumpet blow, a judgment's going to fall on the earth. And then when the seventh trumpet sounds, there's going to be seven bowls of judgment poured out on the earth. And then that's it. Judgment's fulfilled. Jesus comes back. Everything's restored. But these seven trumpets are progressively worse than the seals and then the bowls are even worse so we're getting judgment is more and more severe and I think this moment of silence here is a testimony that this is a very solemn time and we we do moments of silence to remember something that's solemn that seems to be what's happening here because it's really bad what's about to take place Verse 2, And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So here are seven angels, the very uh, prominent angels apparently, because they're in the throne room, and they're given seven trumpets. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. So we have throne. This is the eighth time the word throne has shown up starting from 7-1 forward. Eighth time. So very prominent. Throne, 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 throne. We're in the throne room. God is on His throne. We can't forget that because of all the devastation that's coming to the earth. What's going to happen here is we've got throne. God is in control. But the next part's really important. Prayers. Because all this devastation is going to come on the earth. He might ask, Well, why are you doing this, God? And answer, because you asked me to. This is what's necessary. This is what's necessary to get where you want to go. And that kind of reminds me of being a child and saying, Daddy, I want to learn to ride a bicycle. And after about the tenth knee scrape and the third time falling over, the child may say, why are you doing this to me? Uh, Because you asked me to help you ride the bicycle, and this is a necessary part of it. 
this is a necessary thing. So, throne prayers. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. So, throne, God's in control. Prayers, we want fulfillment to come to the earth. We want resolution. Fire, judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. What God uses to cleanse. What God uses to redeem is fire. And we're going to see fire be a prominent theme throughout Revelation. It's not necessarily a pleasant thing, but it's a very welcome thing. You know, fire cauterizes your veins so your nose doesn't bleed. I had the doctor do a cauterization on my nose at one point because I had a varicose vein. You know, having suddenly your nose start bleeding in the middle of something is very inconvenient. You know what? I did not like that cauterization. It hurt like fire. My nose was sore for several days. But it was worth it because my nose stopped bleeding. And that's kind of what God does with His fire. He cleanses so that things can be restored. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, verse 6, prepared themselves to sound. Now, I tried to vision what this might look like. I looked on YouTube and I found the uh, London Fanfare Trumpets. And you can go look at it. It happens to be seven guys. And I watched them, and they marched out. They stood at attention, and then they all raised their horns at the same time. Then they played this beautiful song. I think prepared themselves to sound. What's happening is these guys are getting ready to blow, which I think tells us that this is going to happen in rapid succession. We're going to see boom, 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 boom. It's not going to be long periods between this. They're going to blow, and things are going to happen. Once again, we saw this with the seals when the four horsemen of the apocalypse went out. They were given the power to conquer. They were granted the authority to bring death and devastation on the earth. Once again, this is all being authorized from heaven. We can't forget that. God's still on His throne. Devastation's coming, but it's all part of what has to take place. They prepared themselves to sound. Verse 7, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet, and the three angels are about to sound. So this is all pretty bad stuff taking place. Obviously, massive devastation. And really, the worst part of it is that when this massive devastation takes place, an angel comes out and says, well, now the really bad stuff's coming. The moment of silence makes more and more sense as you go through this. I mean, I don't know what to say about this too much. Obviously, it's horrific. But one thing that seems to be the case is the first four are mostly upon 
the physical earth, like the environment, the trees and the grass and the seas and things like that. The last three are going to be supernaturally initiated attacks directly on people. So I think that's why it gets even worse. But these four things also seem to have a direct spiritual connection. Look at this verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven. We looked at this last week, aster, star, and we're going to see here in a minute there's an angel, a star that comes down and is given the key to the bottomless pit. So this is likely has some sort of spiritual connection. And if we, if we look over to chapter 12 real quick, we can see there's like a parenthetical explanation of what we've been seeing that seems to take place. Look at verse 3, and it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. And again, this seems to be a documentary to say, let me explain some things to you about these events you've just witnessed. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of the heaven of heaven, and threw them to the earth. So that's the dragon. And he's throwing stars to the earth. And we skip on down to verse 7. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. So this is the dragon with a third of the stars. And that's obviously Satan and his angels, right? So now Satan and his angels, the dragon, are fighting with Michael and his angels in heaven. But they did not prevail, nor was any place found for them in heaven any longer. And look down at verse 12. And it says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So this is a happy thing for heaven. Finally, Satan and his angels are thrown out. We have cleansed the pollution that's been in heaven for all these eons. You've seen this, right? Spiritual powers and principalities is what we really fight with, not flesh and blood. And the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, they're still primary domain is still in the heavenly places. We saw this in Job. Satan is talking to God right there in the heavenly places. Well, now they're cast out. And heaven's like, yay, heaven. Then it says, woe to the habits of the earth and the sea, for the devils come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has short time. So it's yay for heaven, boo for earth. And not just boo, but woe. And I think this is kind of part of what the three woes are going to be is we're actually getting an idea that when Satan comes down with his angels, there's going to be a lot more very direct impact and influence on the earth. And what they are is destroyers, and they they love destruction, and there's going to be a lot of it. So let's go on to the three woes. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So again, this is a star, aster, same Greek word, but it's an angel, clearly, because to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like a smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Have you ever had a uh, like a, a grill or something, you go out and go, oh no. Again, there's too much smoke coming out of the grill and you open it up, everything in there is on fire and it just kind of 
that seems to be kind of what this is like. This happened to me not too long ago. I, I was cooking sausages and the sausages caught on fire. We didn't eat them, obviously. It was not, it was not a good day. But it seems to be like this, like he opens the door, just, you know, like massive smoke and everything comes out of this place. It's not a, it doesn't sound like a happy place. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out, verse 3, Then out of the smoke locusts came on the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Now remember, we're most likely in this three and a half year period called the Great Tribulation. It's the middle, it's, sorry, it begins in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, this week of years, this seven year period. And we have seen in Revelation that there's, yeah, 1,260 days and we saw 42 months. We've seen both of those phrases uh, that are that are talked about and half of Seven years, of course, is 42 months, uh, especially if you use a lunar calendar like the Jews do. And so we were in this time period, and five of those months are specifically designated for this torment. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on here, and we can ask a question, what is the bottomless pit? So the bottomless pit is actually three words... It's something like Frere Tess Abusu. And it's probably more literally translated Pit of the Abyss. And this Abyss is the word, or Abusu, however you pronounce that in Greek, is actually only in Scripture a couple other times other than in Revelation. And it actually means, you know, a ditch. Like when Jesus says if somebody has a donkey that falls in a pit and you go... Are you going to let him stay there for Sabbath, or are you going to go get him out? It's the same word. So it's the it's the pit of the abyss, and this this idea of abyss actually shows up quite often in Scripture. In fact, we might just look at Luke eight twenty seven. In Luke eight twenty seven. In verse 26, we may start, they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. This would be on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And he asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. This is verse 30. Because many demons had entered him. Verse 31. And he, they, they the, the demons, begged him they wouldn't, that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Interesting, huh? So there's this notion that there's this abyss, this pit, with a lock on it. And all these demonic forces inside who are not allowed to interact with the earth. There's these demons that say, hey, don't send us to the pit, please. You know, we know, we know that you have the authority to do so, but please do not do that. Let's also look at Jude, verse 6. Well, there's only one chapter. Jude 6, start in verse 5. But I want to remind you 
though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Maybe that's who we're seeing let out of this pit here. Angels that left their abode, they broke the rules, they got thrown into the abyss, and now they're being unleashed. Certainly could be the case. Whatever it is, this is not a happy occurrence. You would not want to go and be like a person watching this happen. You know, how we, how we tend to go to dangerous stuff like tornadoes so we can watch it. This would not be a good idea to go. That's not a good idea either. But we most definitely would not want to be there watching this. this is, these are bad guys. They're bad, but what's real clear here? They're really under authority. So you see how these, these demonic forces are horrific. But these guys have been chained up. The ones in the, the, the legion and the man said, don't make us go into the abyss. Can we go into the pigs instead? These guys here are let out of the pit and they're told you can do this and not that. Once again, God's on the throne. He's in control. It won't look like it. It won't feel like it. But it is. That's, I think, one of the main points here. And, specifically, they're not allowed to hurt those men who have the seal of God on the foreheads. Now, last time, we had the 144,000 witnesses sealed. And the seal of God was put on their forehead. And that probably includes these people. But it probably goes beyond that, I would think. It would be anybody at this point in time that is God's, that he's protecting. And you know, I think it's important to just kind of think about this. As a matter of fact, let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Because this is a promise we have on a continual basis that I think is completely relevant to this that we really need to always grasp. And 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now he says, therefore. If you go back to verse 1 through 11, he's talking about the whole experience of the Exodus. The whole experience of the Exodus. If, if you read what the children of Israel did, they came out of slavery, they were delivered miraculously, they were given provision, and then they were given a choice. And when they made bad choices, bad things happened. And when they made good choices, good things happened. Okay? That's the experience. And it was all written down for a specific reason. And that's so, verse 6, for our example. So we could learn this lesson. So he says, therefore, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We're always on the borderline of making a bad decision. So don't presume you're going to make good decisions. It takes effort to make good decisions. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Everybody's got the same problems. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So if a circumstance has come into your life, what does it mean? God authorized it. He let it happen. He could have made it not happen. And what else does it mean? You have the power to handle it. I have the power to handle it. And it may not feel like we have the power to handle it. Why might it not feel like we have the power to handle it? Because in our own strength, we don't, right? 
And we tend to walk in our own strength most of the time. We tend to prefer that. But through the power of Christ, we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. We have the seal of the Spirit. And in fact, if you think about this, this is kind of like one of those little babushka things, you know, where you open the top and there's another one that looks just like it inside. I don't know why, I don't know why that's interesting. The same thing over and over again, but different sizes. But this is sort of like that because we have the Exodus where God brought plagues upon the ruler of the earth to deliver his people out of slavery and restore them to a promised land. That's the illustration that's given here. And what he's telling us is, we're always in that circumstance. We're in a world that's ruled by an evil ruler. Now, Jesus has dispossessed that evil ruler, which is Satan, but he has not yet taken office. We have a lame duck evil ruler that's that's being dispossessed. And there are bad things that happen along the way. And we have the opportunity by faith to trust God in those bad things. And then what's going to happen at the fulfillment of the age is there's going to be another Pharaoh over the whole earth, the Antichrist. And he's going to take over the earth and he's going to start persecuting the people of God. He's going to enslave them. He's going to kill them. Sound familiar? Just like Pharaoh killed the male children and like he enslaved the people. And God is going to deliver. He's going to pour out His plagues. That's what we're watching happen with these trumpet judgments. He's pouring out His plagues on the earth because He's delivering His people. Well, let's go back to Revelation 9. So these scorpions have authority to torment for five months, but not the people of God with the seals. Then it goes on to describe the torment some, which is interesting. Verse 5, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stripes a man. Anybody ever been stung by a scorpion? How does it feel? Can you describe it? Oh, wonderful. Okay, a bee sting for 30 minutes and then you start going numb. So think about that happening all day long for five months. So does that that give you... Everybody here has probably been stung by a bee. I got stung by a bumblebee one time. Man, I do not recommend that. It's like double size my thumb. It was my own fault. I grabbed him. You know, I was just thought I can, I can, I can get that guy. When I was about twelve years old. I, that's a lesson I didn't forget. Let me tell you, I will not grab a bumblebee again. But yeah, but just think about that. You've got that all day for five months, and in verse six, now you kind of have a thought in your mind. In those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die, but death will flee from them. So it really hurts. This is pain coming in. And then he goes on about these locusts. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and the sting was in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. So, I have no idea what this thing is. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want one to bite me. And it seems that it's some kind of demonic thing. 
like you know these angels that took on the wrong forms like they got put there in the first place perhaps like the guys in Jude that left their proper abode and did things they weren't supposed to do now it's like okay go ahead and do stuff and they, I don't know they go inhabit some locusts and turn them into these vile creatures I don't know what happens but it's not good and their king is the king of the or the yeah the angel the of the bottomless pit and his name in his Hebrew is Abaddon in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon means destruction and Apollyon means destroyer. So you get the picture here that this is a bad five months and it's worse than the first four thing first four trumpet judgments which were horrific in the than of themselves. And then it says, One woe is past. Behold, two more woes are coming after these things. So we've got four trumpets inside the seventh seal, and then three trumpets that are the three woes to making up a total of seven trumpets. And this is kind of interesting too. You got three different groups of seven inside the 70th year a week of years, so 77s, and we're in the 70th seven, and now we're going through three sevens, three kind of being the, the number of divinity, seven being the number of completion. So we're in this judgment that's divine judgment and coming to completion. This is the completion of judgment on the earth. Then the sixth angel sound, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Well, apparently there's these really horrific forces that are constrained just somewhere on the earth, uh, maybe hiding right behind a dimension, maybe, maybe right there. And we can't see that dimension, but it's right there. And these guys are unbound. The word there is literally untied. Like, go untie that donkey. So they're bound up and say, okay, it's time to release these guys. They've been sitting there you know, like a horse ready to go out of the gate for 2,000 years. And now you're going to let them go. That's going to happen on the sixth trumpet. And of course, I've already mentioned this, but I just love the fact that the furniture talks here. And the golden altar is speaking to this sixth angel. It's a hopeful thought to me because this is going to be such an awesome place that we go to, even though it's pretty dire right now as we're looking at it. So verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of plates, breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads. And with them they do harm. So this appears to be an army of some kind in some great battle, some great war. This number 200 million, if you get some translations, it'll say 200,000. The literal is two myriad myriads. 
And my view would have been a better translation. If, if Some translations actually say that. Myriads of myriads. So a lot of whatever this is. And this is war happening and the war is on people and a third of the people die. So, I mean, if you go through and do the math of this many people died and then what's left, this many people, the population's shrinking a lot, obviously. And then here's kind of the culminating thought. where We've had now seven seals, six trumpets, all this judgment on the earth. And we saw that atheism has gone away here. People look and say, God is judging us. Okay, everybody gets what's happening here. They have reality about what's going on. And, they, and this is the result, verse 20. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What a sad commentary on mankind, huh? Again, going back to the Exodus, kind of reminds you of Pharaoh. One plague. No, yeah, oh, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You, you can go. Oh, I changed my mind. You can't go. Another plague. You know, I, hey, so what is it going to take, right? And finally, the Passover, and he says, okay, finally, you can go. And then again, changes his mind and chases after him. This is our human problem. Even when we see God and his power and judgment, we say, I refuse to bow. Just like Pharaoh. And it's happening again. So, really sad. Now, it's interesting here, the specific behaviors that are highlighted. Murder, sorceries, idolatry, and sexual immorality. Let's just take a look at these things in Revelation. We can go back to 2.14. And then we're now we're into the letter to the churches, the what was and is part of Revelation. Chapter 4 and forward is what is to come. And it says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. So the specific thing that's called out in that particular church is idolatry, sexual immorality. 2.20 Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Idolatry, sexual immorality. We can jump way ahead to 21.8. Since this is such a morose lesson, let's start in 6. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Camp on that one. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I, for the ones who are overcomers, remember an over, overcomer is a reward. Jesus said, if you overcome as I overcame, I will give to you to sit with me on my throne. And this is the big call here, is to be the kind of witness that does not fear death so that God will reward us with this amazing reward. Shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Again, this is like the Hebrew's son, where the king adopts someone and says, you're now my son, this is my way of honoring you as a member of the royal family. But, 
the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then one chapter forward to 22.15, something similar. Now we're talking about the gate. Blessed are those who do His commandments. They may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. Verse 15 then. But outside, outside the city, we're now in the new earth. And we got the city of Jerusalem, this 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile thing that came down from heaven as a prefab city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. That's who's outside. And it'll be fun when we get there to talk about who that might be and why there's people just outside the city like this that can't go in. But suffice for now to say, these particular behaviors are highlighted in Revelation as behaviors not becoming of an overcomer and the kind of thing that God is eradicating from the earth. And even when judgment comes, people say, I won't leave those things behind. Which is, you know, begs the question, why? Why is it we cling to these things so much? Well, let's just end with a thought about these sins and why they're so appealing to mankind that it would cause us to look at something as horrific as these judgments and say, I refuse to repent. I'm going to keep doing these things. Well, first, of course, is idolatry. And idolatry is nothing more than not putting God in His proper place. Now, we already saw throne, 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 throne. 41 times we're going to see the word throne in Revelation. Was given, was authorized, was allowed, was prohibited. God is in control. God is on the throne. God is God. And what we want to do is have somebody else be God. And who do we want to be God, mainly? Mainly us, right. Now, we will use an intermediary, happily. God Himself, for one thing. You know, God, you're obligated to do this for me. That's nothing more than God turning into Santa Claus, which makes us God. Or God turning into a vending machine. You know, if I do this, you'll do that. That was the sin of Eliphaz and his friends in the book of Job that made God so mad. Or we might use an idol, I mean, an actual, like, figure, and say... These are the calves that brought us out of Egypt. But what we're really saying is, these give me an excuse to do whatever I want to do. In fact, Jeroboam, when he set up the idol or the golden calves in Dan and in Shechem, in Dan and Ephraim, the two tribes left out of that list we saw last week, when when he set those up, he did specifically so the people would stay under his control instead of going down to Judah, where he might kind of lose them, so to speak. So we want things under our control. That's our fundamental problem. And why do we want things under our control? So we can gain what we perceive as benefit for ourselves. One of which being sexual immorality. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6.15. There's two reasons why the Bible very specifically condemns sexual immorality. And reason number one, very predictable in the Bible. Do you not know... 1 Corinthians 6.15, that your bodies are members of Christ. We're all part of the body of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? 
Certainly not, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Now marriage is sexual union. We're only supposed to be married to one person. And when we are sexually immoral, we're married to multiple people. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So reason number one to avoid this particular sin is it's particularly self-destructive. You know, all sin is self-destructive. Paul makes that point in Romans, right? Slavery, death, corruption, Is that really what you want to do, guys? Don't do that. It's self-destructive. But sexual immorality is particularly self-destructive. So don't do that. And reason number two comes in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. You ever have a counseling session with someone that wants to know the will of God? Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 chapter 4 verse 3 this is the will of God colon your sanctification that's it that's our will of God he wants us to grow up he wants us to become everything he designed us to be that's the will of God well what do I do then which job do I take who do I marry what circumstance do I do I try to fabricate you won't see any of those things Number one is abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Well, because if you don't do that, it goes on to say, you're basically a slave of lust. And then he goes on to say, don't defraud one another. So reason number two is, this is an impediment to becoming who God made us to be. God made us to be someone who serves other people, not someone who defrauds other people. And sexual immorality is the ultimate in fraud. Because what is marriage supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about oneness. Two people having the same goal. And what is sexual immorality? It's about me getting something from you. It's about extraction. It's about taking. And it's fraud. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretending we're going to oneness because I want something from you. I'm just taking you. And of course, lying and these other things, murder, that's all part of that. I want something, so I'm going to coerce you to take it. Which is why the whole world filled with violence before the flood. And God took care of that. Well, now you've got a world full of the same thing and God's taking care of it again. And He's going to bring it to fruition where His overcomers are going to be installed as the new regents and is going to have a serving kingdom. And all of this kind of attitude is going to be wiped out. And the third thing, finally, sorcery. And this is the Greek word pharmakeia. So pharmacy, sorcery, occult is always involves drug, drug abuse. And there, there's two things about sorcery. One is escape. I can use drugs to escape the reality that's real and create my own reality. Sadly, I'm aware of a a young man who has 
uh, a problem with uh, marijuana and basically stays on it all the time, stays high on it all the time, even to the point where his friends who are uh, users of marijuana say, this is overdosing, you know, this is too much. And when confronted, has said, you know, I have to do this because when I'm high, I'm such a better person. And the reason his friends are concerned about it is because when he's high, he's intolerable to interact with. So the reality is, he's a massive, off-the-charts jerk that no one wants anything to do with when he's high. And he thinks he's Mr. Congeniality when he's high. Which is what drugs does. It creates a false reality where we can control our environment. We are now God in our own environment through this drug. And of course, occult practice is I'm going to impose my will on others. I'm going to voodoo somebody and make them hurt or something like that. So it's this false reality about who's in charge, a false reality about who's on control. Oh, sorry, who's on the throne? A false reality about where I live. And these three sins that are talked about all throughout the Scripture are going to be eradicated. And the earth is going to be restored. So, grim days, really dire picture, but all pointed towards restoration. And again, one thing we can get from Revelation... That's really clear is God's God, God's on the throne. If something happens, it's authorized, and I have the power to deal with it when it comes. God, thank you for your word. These are troubling things to consider, but thank you that you're in control and we have the opportunity, even now, where, to the best of our knowledge, we're not in this era, as tribulation comes. We can face it like a faithful martyr and not fear any sort of death, any sort of separation, any sort of rejection, and follow you notwithstanding. In Jesus' name, amen.